Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Good morning. Really appreciate the authors who wrote some of our worship songs. I hope that when you sing, you you really think about the words that you're singing. To the king in need of nothing. Man, how blessed are we to reap the rewards from the king who needs nothing but chose to give us everything. Today we're going to be back in... Exodus chapter 4. Yes, I'm well aware there is no Jacob chapter 32. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 34 today, uh, continuing the message that we started last week. And I want to also put in a little plug for that gentle and lowly book, um, the one that John was talking about earlier. I just finished reading that about a week and a half ago. In fact, right before I started this this two-part sermon series, and it is the reason that I came back to this text. I was, I was fairly well settled on a different text, and I read that book, and it was, it was very impactful to me. It, it brought me back to who God is, what He does, why He cares for us, brought me back to the heart of God and the heart of Christ And that's what brought me back to this passage here in Exodus 34, which is one of the foundational passages in God's Word where he describes in the midst of um, visual proclamation, in the midst of acting for us, he is describing who he is. Last week we talked about God's goodness passing before us. It, It started back in Exodus 33 and how, how Moses, with a, a sincere and a pure desire, asked God to see his glory. And God said, I will show you all my goodness. And then we, we come to the events that in uh, Exodus 34, verses 6, 7, and 8 here. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to go back through all the history that I did at the start of last week, but there are some things that are important to get through when we, when we consider this passage, how it reflects God, and how we need to, to not put God in a box. I, I know I have a tendency, and I'm sure all of us do have a tendency, to try to describe God in our ways, with our words, with our methods, according to who humanity is. And we really need to struggle against the flesh to do that because God is not like us. We are like Him. We carry His image in certain ways, but He is perfect and pure and He is not corrupt. And we need to not put God in the box of humanity. And and that's one of the things that I was really trying to to stress last week and this week is let, let's go back to um, the Bible, to God's Word, to the only truth that we have that clearly and specifically explains who is God, what is His character, who is His, what is His person, what are His attributes and how does He act for us. So I just want to encourage you to, to not put God in the, in the lens of humanity but to put him in the lens of the eternal, infinite, transcendent God. Last week I talked about uh, verse 6 primarily, the Lord being gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this week as I was sitting in my office looking out the window on Friday morning, um, watching the snow, Yuck. I was really hoping we were past that, but apparently apparently not yet. But I was sitting there enjoying the blessings from the Lord. I was inside a warm house. I was staring out the window thinking about what, what is in this passage that he wants to teach me this week. And 
the neighbor kids had already come by and shoveled our walk. Praise the Lord for great neighbors. And, and now these kids are out in front of my house and they're playing in the snow. And Emmy is, she's probably four-ish. And she's sitting in the snow, in the, in the snow bank by the sidewalk. She's got her, her, her boots and her snow pants and her coat and her hat and all, all her winter stuff on. And she's just sitting in the snow and she's got her hand up like this. And she's trying to catch snowflakes. And it's, if you remember, it was, it was the big fluffy snow that kind of falls to the ground. And so she's moving around and she's trying to catch these snowflakes and eating them, of course, because that's what you do when you're four. And I was thinking about God's mercy and his grace and his love. And everything outside my window was freshly covered in the snow. And I thought, that's what God's love is. We don't recognize it all the time, but it covers every single thing in this world. It's a constant covering. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't exist. And I just sat there pondering that for a minute and looking at at that young girl, um, naive, and, and catching the blessings of God as they caught, as they as they come down from heaven. So, um, just want to share that with you, with the thought that God's love surrounds us. So I'm going to go through a little bit of the context, the the history that leads us up to this particular passage, because again today, as you will see later on in the message, it is critical to understand who God is, to watch what he does, to watch what man does, to see what God does in return, to see those interactions that helps us understand who God is. So the context, uh, again, leading up to where we're at, if we started in the earlier chapters of Exodus, chapters 19 to 23, Moses met with God on the mountain and inside of a covering of a thick cloud and lightning and thunder and, and a mountain shaking from the presence of God, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. This is the, the outline of the moral law for man. And with those Ten Commandments, God gave um, a whole bunch of accompanying information and laws and standards that man is, is required to live by. While we, we fail at doing that, God gave us that standard to live by. And that's what he's doing for Moses right now on the mountain. And if we, we move ahead to chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24, Moses comes down the mountain and he, he gives these commands to the people, to the Israelites. They respond. They say, yep, yeah, that sounds good. And they enter into a covenant relationship with God according to the standards that, that he set, that God set. Chapters 25 to 31, Moses goes back up on the mountain. And again in the presence of God, in the cloud, the thunder, the lightning, God gives Moses uh, the ceremonial laws. These are things in regard to the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the coverings for the priests. It is, a, a, again, a standard of how we are to act in the presence of God. How do we go to God? How do we cleanse ourselves to go to God? What do we, what do we wear, the coverings of what the priests wore? And, and how do we consecrate ourselves to go to God? So he was supplying the Israelites with ways and means by which and through which they could be in a proper relationship with God. That, that's what's happening in all these, these prior chapters here. And again, during that time, Moses is up on the mountain, the Israelites are, are down on the ground, and they're witnessing God's manifestation and all his power, or part of his power and glory on this mountain. And the Israelites fabricated and started worshiping a golden calf. And this did not go without notice. Um, if we start in Exodus 32, uh, verse 7, there, there's a, a couple things that we can pick up right here. Verse 7, God tells Moses, they have corrupted themselves. The end of verse 7. The Israelites have corrupted themselves. They have sinned in the, in the 
verdict, the guilt of that sin lays on themselves. Verse 8, God said, they had quickly turned away from what I had commanded them. Verse 9, God declares them a stiff-necked people. They stare at what they want. We want this, and, and this is our focus, and this is what we're staring at. And all we want is right here when God in all his majesty is right there. Verse 10, we see God test Moses, and Moses, in a righteous, proper reaction, passes this test, and he goes back down the mountain, and he smashes the tablets, and he melts down the golden calf, and he makes the people eat it, and it's wonderful and terrible all at the same time. We have the image of, of Moses, the mediator between God and man, doing what is right and just and, and good. And we have sinners in the most heinous sin of idolatry at the same time in the same place. So Moses, as that mediator to God, he, he calls together the Israelites that are faithful to God. He says, those of you who are loyal to God, come to me. And only those of the tribe of the, of the Levites came before him and he sends them out on a mission. He says, the people have sinned, pick up your swords and go kill your family. And they do. Those who are faithful and loyal to the righteousness of God go and kill 3,000 of their family members. People of the other tribes of Israelite that day. 3,000 people die because of their sins. And that was not enough just retribution for the Lord. The Lord himself sends a plague on the Israelites. And then in verse 34, chapter 32, verse 34, God says, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. God is holy, perfect, separate from sin, and he is righteous. He will deal with those who sin. We would think that in that context, when we, in our mind's eye, picture what was going on the mountain, what the people were doing, God's wrath poured out on them, we would think it would be terrifying to the Israelites, and they would do nothing except fall on their face and worship him and follow him, and yet, that's not really what we see happening because they are a stiff-necked people. They refuse to acknowledge God for more than a minute or two and they go back to what they were doing, sinning, separate from God. So the passage in, that we looked at yesterday started in chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. That's where Moses asked God to show him his glory, and God agreed to show Moses all his goodness. And we're going to continue on from there in this narrative, and what we should recognize is that God's character does not change according to the action of the Israelites. He was who he, who he was. We looked at that last week. I am who I am. I don't change. I am independent. I am self-sufficient. And just because the Israelites sinned in my face, they worship idolatry right here in front of my manifestation, he doesn't change. He remains steadfast in his ways, true to his promises, and committed to the, his personal involvement with the Israelites. Let's, um, let's read again Exodus 34, start at verse 5, and we'll, we'll read through verse 9. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. 
And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, come today to study your word, to read the truth that is contained in it that talks about you, that describes you, that gives us information about your actions, your activity in mankind. Lord, I'm just searching for you today, searching for who you are, and I pray that you will show yourself to us, Lord, the truth, your steadfast love and faithfulness, your mercy and grace. You are slow to anger, and yet you are righteous and just, and we are sinners. Lord, help show us our sin. Turn our necks so that we are not focused on ourselves and our sin and our pride. Show us your goodness and what you have done for us. Show us how we need to react to you, our holy God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 7 is where we're going to start today. And there's, there's a couple questions that we need to, to look at because this is a, it's a long and, and maybe fairly confusing passage to some. And before we visit those couple questions, I want to go over a couple definitions. Verse 7 says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin. Three words that we today may, we might use them interchangeably, we might think of them being the same things, but the Jews would not have. And so we want to we define what it is that they thought, that they knew when they heard these words. So looking at the, the translations from the original Hebrew, if we look at the literal definitions of of these words, iniquity literally means twisting or something twisted. Therefore, it's not straight. It's the opposite of straight. Iniquity is veering from that which is straight. It's, it's misaligned. If we look at a line all by itself that's independent, even if it's not perfectly straight, we might not realize that. But if there is a perfectly straight line next to a line that's, that's slightly crooked or a little bowed or moves back and forth, then the obviousness of that crooked line becomes more apparent. We, we can see that. So, so we have in our life a perfect line to follow. We have the example of Christ. We have the Word of God. We have an unchanging, perfect straight line that is the standard that we're to live by. And so when we veer from that perfect line that is iniquity. We, we, are, we, may, we may not be in full-blown sin, but we're, we may have strayed out of our lay, lane. We may have come away from what God wants us to be. That is what iniquity is. Transgression literally means apostasy or rebellion. It's, it's, it should be more more weighty when we think about it. It is the breaking of a law and being in opposition to the lawgiver. So when we think of God as a lawgiver, when we break that law, that is a transgression. This is crossing the line. And the last word used here is sin, which literally the translation is missing an aim. It missed the mark. It did not end up where it was supposed to or it fell short. The scripture reading uh, that we read earlier that, that we're going to come back to in a bit from Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. We either don't get there or we fall short or we cross the line and we totally miss it. And that is our sin. We cannot get to the perfect destination of God without his interference in our life. The combination of these terms provides a, an all-inclusive statement of all our sins, all our transgressions, whether they're secret, whether they're open, whether they're against man, whether they're against God. This is an all-inclusive statement 
that, that brings to mind the violations that separate us from God. So in this passage, there's, there's two questions I want to address. The first one is, how do we understand a God who is forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty? They seem, at, at first glance, to be contradictory, to, to not make sense, to not be possible for both of these to happen at the same time. And so we're going to dig into this, and, and what we see is, God says he will by no means clear the guilty. Guilty is a, a legal term. It refers to a person who's been convicted of a crime. If you, have, if you have crossed the line, if you're in apostasy or rebellion to God, you have sinned and you are guilty of that crime. Adam and Eve were the first people to do this. They sinned and placed themselves in that position where they are they are in rebellion to God and His law, and because of that, all human life sits under the curse of sin. We sit under the hereditary consequence of their sin. I want you to open, open up to Romans 3, and we're going to spend a few minutes in that passage that we read earlier. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because Adam and Eve, because of Adam's sin, because Adam is the federal head, he is the legal representative of all who came behind him, we have his spiritual DNA the same as we have hereditary physical DNA from our parents. My mom and dad were here last week. I, they sat in the back with me. And maybe you, maybe you bumped into them, or maybe you taller people looked right over my mom because she's, she's five foot tall. My dad was 5'8 before he had a couple back surgeries, and here I am right in the middle of them, not a whole lot taller than my mom, but I have absolutely nothing I can do about that. We have hereditary DNA that we cannot change. The same with that, we have spiritual DNA that we cannot change. The first appearance of that came with, um, came with Adam's sin. Adam ate of the fruit of the garden. He blamed it on his wife. Then he blamed God for giving him his wife. And then he tried to cover it up. And then he got thrown out of the garden. He was the first man to ever live and the first man to ever sin. The second man to ever live was his son Cain. Cain murdered his brother. Hereditary spiritual sin is shown in the first two men of the Bible and it jumps a pretty considerable distance from eating of the fruit to murdering your brother. We don't have to look far to see what God is talking about in in um, Exodus where he says we have all sinned and the sins of the father can be given to the son because the son will inherit the spiritual identity of the father. We are all corrupt and sinful. In Romans 3.23, this statement shouldn't be a surprise to us for all have sinned. We need to, perhaps more than we do, wrestle this down, wrestle down our initial sin, the sin that was handed to us, that we, did we deserve it? Well, who knows? That's not really a consideration we're going to look at, but we can blame Adam. We can say, well, Adam was a jerk. Two weeks in a row, I'm going to call somebody a jerk from the pulpit. So, so Adam was a, a jerk and he sinned, right? Well, Adam's a sinner. It's what he did. We are sinners. When we look at Adam, the first man in the garden looking at the goodness of God, in the presence of God, sitting, sinning, we look at Moses and the Israelites in the presence of God, staring at the goodness of God, and they sin. We sit here in the presence of God, looking at the goodness of God, all the things that He covers in our earth every day, and we sin. We're sinners. We need to accept that and wrestle it down. And if you move ahead just a couple pages to Romans 6, 
If you don't have a pen, feel free to get up and grab one because there's a couple passages here that, that you should know and you should recognize and you should contemplate and meditate on these. The last verse in Romans 6, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Justice was served at the foot of the mountain when the Levites took the sword and killed 3,000 sinners. They sinned. The justice of God was death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thankfully, God has given us a way, has made a way where there is no way for us to come to him and to not be burdened with the eternal consequences of that sin and it's, it's very clearly here in this, in this statement in Romans. <clears throat> the Old Testament saints who were, were at the foot of the mountain, all the Old Testament saints, everybody in the Old Testament who was going to be saved, was saved by the same manner that we see in, in Romans 6, by the free gift of God. And it is through Christ Jesus, it is through his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that we gain an opportunity to be with God. So the promise of the coming Messiah that the people were looking forward to in the Old Testament is visualized here in Romans, and we see more clearly revealed the the part of that paper has been pulled back from our Christmas gift, and it is Jesus Christ, and it is his righteousness and His mercy and His grace that gives us the opportunity for eternal life. So back in in Exodus, the unstoppable force of God had made a determination, and there was no immovable object that was going to get in His way. So for the thousands of years that those people lived by the promise of faith in God and and the coming Messiah, God could not be stopped from fulfilling that promise. He doesn't change when he sets his mind on something. He made a promise. It came true. We, 2,000 years later, have the advantage of looking back and saying, right, I see that. I saw what he promised. I saw what happened. I see a more fulfilled revelation of God and his son and what he did for us. So how does God forgive sin without denying the guilt? Well, he doesn't. It's an apparent contradiction. It's not a real contradiction. The question we're looking at in Exodus 34 is, is how does he forgive sin and transgression and iniquity but not free the guilty? Well, he doesn't. Somebody dies for the guilt. Either it's us or it's Christ. Because God loves us, he sent a way to where we didn't have to die. Flip back to Romans 3 and look at verse 25 in that passage. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God put forth Christ, His perfect blood, His perfect life, to be received by faith to show His righteousness. One more verse here before we, we leave the New Testament. Flip ahead a couple more pages to, to uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and we'll see a very clear explanation of why He did this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake. Did it for us. Love, grace, mercy, divine righteousness. We have to put all these characteristics of God into the same unchanging, immutable, transcendent God. We need to figure out how to put a love of God that is so immense and unending and we need to put in His righteousness and His wrath and His punishment with that and we can only do that through the life and death of Jesus Christ. 
One more, one more quick reference here in Romans 3. Same passage in Romans 3. Verse 22 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. There's the kicker. The stiff-necked people, the people that fixate and, and are fascinated with and will not turn from their own ways and look at God in the mountain, those people will remain under the condemnation of sin if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Praise God we have the opportunity today to see a more clear picture of this because it was, it was happening in the events of Exodus 34. Think about the 3,000 people that, that died. Think about the sword. Think about the plague. Those are the wage, wages of sin. At that time, people knew a few things for certain. There was a God. People are sinful. And God would deal with their sin one way or another. It may not have been fully revealed in Christ, but they were well aware that the wages of sin is death and somebody's going to die. They saw it. It was happening all around them. If we go back to Exodus 34, we'll look at the, the second question that verse 7 brings to mind. It's another apparent contradiction. So we need to reconcile God keeping steadfast love for thousands while visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. How, how does God do both those things without unchanging, without violating his character, without stopping to be holy or divine? Well, first off, we know that it's not God placing the sin of the father on the child. That's us. We inherited the sin and we are sinful and it is our sin that goes to the children. It's not God. The holy God will not, cannot, does not make anybody sin. That's our sin that we're passing on to our children. We can blame Adam, but if you're here and you can understand the words that I'm saying, you've sinned far enough on your own to deserve condemnation. We all have. We are corrupt people. God doesn't need to place sin on us because that is our nature. It is not his nature. If you want, keep your finger or your ribbon or something right there in Exodus 34. We're going to back up a few pages because the, the context of this passage reaches, reaches from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see the, the first visit, the first time that God speaks these specific words to mankind. It's not the whole passage, but it's part of that, that passage. And it comes in Exodus chapter 20 in between verses 1 and 7 where God is telling the Israelites, I'm your God. I'm the only one. I saved you out of Egypt. The things that happened, they were by my power, by my design, according to my promise that I had with Abraham. And don't worship idols. It's one of, the, one of the main focuses in this passage right here. <clears throat> let's, let's just read this real quick, 1 through 7. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Verse 6, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments goes on to verse 7 to say, don't take my name in vain. That This whole passage is about, is about God the Lord over his people, who he is, how we should react to him, how we should see him 
as perfect and holy and how we should give him the reverence and the respect of the God that, that cares for us. And he says, don't worship anybody else. And if we moved ahead just a few chapters, what do we see? We see the Israelites and the golden calf. We see them doing exactly what he said not to do here. Verse 5 says, I am a jealous God. The definition of jealous, the, the, the meaning and the use of the word jealous here is, I am zealous over what I have, over what is mine. You are mine, my people, my earth. I created you. I gave you life. I saved you. You are mine. Stop chasing other things. <clears throat> verse 6. Well, maybe still in verse 5 there. The second half of verse 5. This is the first time that God says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But we see the addition of a phrase here that we don't see later on in the chapter. And it's, it's crucial to our understanding. He says, of those who hate me, but steadfast love to thousands of those. Again, there's more words here than there is later on in the chapter. And it says who love me and keep my commandments. This was the original time, the first time this state was, was made. There's more information here. And so when we, need, when we look at what he said in chapter 34, we need to reconcile it with what he said here with the ad additional information. And what we see is those who hate me will live in their sin. Those who love me and keep my commandments, I will show steadfast love to. We have a responsibility in our lives, a moral obligation to abide by the law and to simply love God, to figure out who He is, who is God, who is the God of creation that did all these wonderful and powerful and sometimes we think of terrible things. We need to love that God because He shows us mercy and grace, and because he is righteous in that love, in his mercy and grace. <clears throat> if we walk in between chapters 20 and 34, in chapter 20, God says, follow me only. I am God, follow me only. Chapter 32, Israel made a golden calf. God judged the sin and people died. Chapter 34, God reiterates this statement Minus, minus a few words, but we need to reconcile what he says here with what he originally said because nothing has changed. So what he's saying is, if you continually sin against me, if you do the exact thing that I told you not to do, there's going to be a guilty consequence and I'm going to pour out judgment on you for that. <clears throat> when I looked up some cross-references for this word. Um, one of the sources I looked it up in had 83 Old Testament references that come off this passage that was originally in Exodus 20 and it is reiterated here in Exodus 34 and it's speaking to God, His character, how He relates to man and our obligations to Him. And because context helps us understand what he says. I want to bring up two of those real quick. When We're still looking at this question of how does God keep steadfast love for thousands while visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children? We're going to go into the, the Old Testament prophets. Two of them right at the start of the Old Testament. Um, the first one's in Joel. Joel was a prophet of the land of Judah. Um possibly right before, right after. Nobody's really sure of when Israel was carried off into captivity. Judah was getting pummeled by their enemies. They, they had a plague of locusts come upon them. And the prophet Joel, by the word and inspiration of God, came to them and basically he says, repent. Repent and be saved. If we start reading in Joel chapter 2, we'll read verses 12 and 13. It says, Yet even now, even amongst all your sin, declares the Lord, 
Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And here's where we see this passage repeated. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He does not want to create disaster for mankind. It's not his desire. His desire is love, mercy, grace, but because he is a righteous and holy God, he will not deal with sin. If we turn from him and repent, he will forgive us. That's what's happened. It's played out um, originally with the Israelites. We see it here in Joel. And if you flip just a couple pages towards the back of your Bible, there's another prophet that people may be more familiar with, and that's Jonah, the story of Jonah. <laughs> Jonah was sent to Tarshish with, with one objective. Go there, preach the gospel so that they repent, and I can save them. He didn't do it. He got swallowed by the fish. He prayed. He got spit out. Finally went to Tarshish with a terrible attitude. And in verse 4, when he's speaking to the Ninevites, telling them to repent, telling the, sinless, or the sinful people that if they repent, God will save them, Verse 2 says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Right, he went to Tarshish, not not Nineveh. Sorry. Um, That's Jonah's bad attitude. And then he, he goes on to say, For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. These particular phrases out of Exodus 34 and 37 play out, are used, are, are described in, in prophets' words and in the lives of the Israelites for the entire Old Testament after we see them here at the beginning of, of their relationship. What's important to pull out of this is God doesn't want to be wrathful. He doesn't want to be angry. He wants to give us love and grace and mercy and all we have to do is repent believe in christ and be saved from the eternal condemnation of sin there is a a specific lesson that we can pull out of this a lot of us in the room are parents and we think about the sin of the father or the mother being passed on to the child and we look at these examples and we see the tendency the heredity hereditary tendency of mankind to sin, to follow in the sins of their fathers, to continue sinning generation after generation. Without getting into detail, we can look at examples of an alcoholic parent. The sins of the father or or the, the alcoholic parent are going to be passed on to the child. Not, I'm not going to get into depth of what that might be, but the adults in the room, you can, you can visualize and in your own mind think about what they might be. A, vis, a verbally or physically abusive parent, their sins are going to be passed on to the child. The child's going to endure that and they're going to struggle to move away from that lifestyle when they get older. I think it's a, it's a very clear practical illustration of what God is talking about in in Exodus 34. We, in our sinfulness, trap our children in our sinfulness. And the only way we can protect our children is to repent, to recognize and identify our own personal sin, to take them to Christ and to move to a different lifestyle, to stop doing that, stop putting our sins on our children. We have moral obligations to not do that. We can look at ourselves and if we, when we look in the mirror, are not the people that we want our children to be, then we need to stop being that person in the mirror. We need to change. We need to repent. We need to identify our weaknesses, our sins, where we veered from the path, where we've crossed the path, or where we've simply fallen short of the mark that we once had. God's righteousness is a good thing. It shows us, teaches us our sinfulness. And if we didn't have that perfect straight line as a guide, 
that we can, we can gauge ourselves from. Are we in our lane? Are we headed towards that goal? If, if he wasn't righteous, wouldn't take us very long to think about what this world would be like. If there was no justice in the world at all, we can see things that, that, that we want and they're heading downhill and there's bombs exploding and people are sinful and the church is getting persecuted, but there's still justice. If there was zero justice, things would be substantially worse. We would have no hope if there was no divine judgment. But we do have hope because there is judgment. We have the understanding that that judgment has a purpose and that purpose is to draw us to God, to make us witness Him, to see Him, to identify Him for who He is, separate and different from us, and it helps us identify who we are in our sinful state, separate and different from Him. This passage, in, in, or this verse rather, Exodus 34, 7, really what's, what it's doing is it's, it's attaching the purpose of the law to God's character. God is saying, I act this way because this is who I am. You need to act this way because that's who God is. We need to follow his example. The law gives us a way to do that. Exodus 19 to 23 is the moral law. It is that guideline. Finishing off this passage, Exodus chapter 8, we see Moses, or I'm sorry, Exodus 32, verse 8, we see Moses, third time's a charm, Exodus 34, verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. How often is that our response? When we see the goodness of God, the glory of God, when he, he pours out his love, mercy, when we witness that, how long, how often is that our response? When's the last time that you physically bowed, when you physically gave up your pride, mentally gave up your pride and physically bowed, put your face on the floor to God? in prayer, in repentance, in acknowledgement of your sin. Moses, verse 8, quickly bowed his head toward the earth, recognizing God's goodness, who he is, his judgment, his character. Moses puts his face right on the earth in the dust that he came from to worship God. Do we, in our sinful pride, acknowledge that? Are we willing to actually get on our knees or put our face on the floor before God and say, this is me. I'm sinful. I need you. You're holy. I'm not. Please help me. Verse 9, we, we see Moses again as a mediator. Moses is the mediator between the Israelites and God. And in this last verse, that's what he's doing. He's saying, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. We need a mediator. Moses was the man mediator in the Old Testament. Christ is the God-man mediator of all time. And we should, when we recognize God's goodness, have no other physical, mental, emotional, spiritual response except to bow ourselves in front of the holy God. Lord, please forgive our sin, our iniquity, our apostasy. We have broken the law. We have come in objection to the lawgiver. Lord, please take us to be your inheritance. I realize there's a lot of context and a lot of flipping back and forth in the Bible today, but but I hope that watching what the Israelites did at the bottom of the mountain, watching what the Israelites did um, when it was just the two tribes in the kingdom of Judah, watching what the Ninevites did 
watching what God did in all those situations. The unchanging God of love, grace, and mercy who will not relent from his righteous judgment has always given us a way to come away from our sin, to come back to him, to break those chains, and it only comes with faith in Christ, with believing in Christ. From the Adam until the last trumpet, there's always been one way, one source for us to break the chains, and that is through Jesus Christ. If you don't know him today, if you haven't believed in him and you're not sure who God is, what he's done for you, or if this is true, I'd love to talk to you. Pastor John would love to talk to you. Let me pray with you and then we'll sing one more song and go home. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. Thank you for your word, Lord, that describes who you are, that gives us your attributes, that tells us who you are, shows us who you are. You've been the same yesterday, today, and forever unchanging, perfect, holy, righteous, good. Lord, help us in our sinfulness, in our ignorance, in our lack of knowledge. Help us to study your word. Help us to be in prayer. Lord, draw us to you, to your perfection, to your holiness, and show us our sinfulness, Lord, that we may repent, that we may not be under the eternal condemnation of sin, but that we may be saved. You are the Savior, the one who saves. Lord, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us. Please work in us today, Lord, in our hearts, our minds. We pray, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.